Friends, friends, how are you? Oh, come on, that's how 8 a.m. sounded. Wah, wah. It's 11. This is the rowdy bunch. Been like, had you, you already had brunch, you should be relaxed, this is gonna be good. All right, my name is Thomas, and it is a joy to be on staff here at Calvary. I cannot tell you how thankful I am for the student ministry and their leadership. Students, you have the greatest leaders ever. Think about this. I mean, the leadership wants them to be anchored in the gospel, in the scriptures, and in the community of God. Like, that's just so rare. You have the best leaders that understand what God is calling you to. And our student ministry desires that students would know who God is because God desires to be known. He desires to make himself known. That's why we're in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the Old Testament epic narrative of how God makes himself known to his people. And that is what gets me excited about opening it every single week with you, is to be able to see how is God making himself known to us, that we would see how good he is, how big he is, how trustworthy he is, despite whatever circumstance we find ourselves in today. Now, speaking of the circumstances today, I'm very, very happy. <laughs> Do you know why? Because the Buffs won! Oh, man, to be a Nebraska fan. There's a lot of sad people. That's all right. I almost texted Pastor Adrian and said, hey, good luck ministering today. But I didn't. I didn't. I restrained myself. I'm a little under the weather, but I'm excited the buffs win, and I'm really excited to be in Exodus with you this morning. So if you have a Bible, let's open it up to Exodus chapter 3. We pick up on the story of where we left Moses off. So Moses has been born and raised in Egypt. And there he was raised in Pharaoh's house amongst the elite, amongst the privileged. But Moses, who knows he's a, a Hebrew, he sees one of his Hebrew slaves of Egypt being tormented and harassed and beaten. And Moses is moved with empathy and justice to step in. In fact, he steps in and takes matters into his own hands and ends up killing this Egyptian. And then Pharaoh learns of what Moses had done. And so a price went out on Moses' head that Moses was going to be killed. And so Moses flees Egypt after 40 years of being in the household of Pharaoh. And he flees to the wilderness, an area called Midian. And there Moses has spent the next 40 years. Where we pick up today is 40 years later, having been in the wilderness in Midian, having a wife now, having children now, a whole family unit. He has a new business. He works for his father-in-law as a shepherd. This is where we meet him today, 40 years removed from Egypt. So Exodus chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, great. If not, there's one hopefully in front of you. If not, grab one on your phone, version, whatever you're using. Hebrew, sorry, Hebrews, Exodus chapter 3 verse 1. We're going to read the first 15 verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, 
He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land following, flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. It's a lot of heights. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, here's a story that maybe you've never heard before. Perhaps you have forgotten and hadn't heard in a long time, and it seems rather peculiar. There's, there's three markers that I want to give you to help navigate the story today. And that is this, these three I words that help us understand what God is doing with Moses as he's calling Moses to himself. The first is this, that he's causing an interruption. There's an interruption in Moses' life. The second is an invitation that we hear from God for Moses to come near. It's an invitation. And then the third one is an intervention. What God is doing to intervene on his people's behalf who are stuck in bondage and he's going to bring them out of bondage to a place of promise. Now, if you've heard the story before, perhaps the familiarity of it doesn't strike you as unusual. For those in the room who haven't heard this episode before or have forgotten about it, you hear it this morning, you think, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. You're talking about a burning bush? That is so odd. That is so unusual. That is weird and should not happen. I can't believe these things. In fact, that's why I don't believe these things, because they're in here. But here, you have to catch, Moses thinks the same thing you're thinking. Moses thinks it's weird. Moses thinks it's odd. It shouldn't be happening. There's nothing in here that says, oh, and this is common. No, Moses thinks this is peculiar, which causes our fir uh, the first part in our story, which is investigation. So as it begins in chapter 3, Moses was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law. Now remember, Moses has been here for 40 years. This is old hat for Moses. Moses knows all of these roads. 
He knows all of these fields. He knows this hill and that mountain. He knows what it looks like in every season. He knows the smells of the seasons. He knows the dew in the morning. He knows the cool in the evening. He knows everything about this area. And as he's going along his regularly scheduled and planned day of being a shepherd in a familiar area with all of his plans and schedules, there's something that interrupts that plan. God interrupts that plan. God interrupts Moses' schedule and plans with this unusual appearance of a bush that's on fire. Now, a bush burning in the wilderness is not unusual. In fact, it's been said that many bushes in the wilderness have, because of the heat, just combusted and lit on fire. But there's something unique about this bush, that it's burning, but it's not consumed. And so there's this phrase in here that as Moses is going about his regularly scheduled plan of events, he sees this bush and he says, I will turn aside to go see what this is. So as Moses is going, there's an interruption in his life and he's willing to then turn aside to be able to go investigate what he sees. There's this famous broadcasting line that's been used in this last century to interrupt our regularly scheduled programming. And it's, inter- it's used when there's an event that's happened in our country or in the world that the populace must know about. And so it's not as usual or as common today with our streaming Netflix services and Hulu. It's hard to interrupt those. But in the day when families would gather around the radio or gather around the television and there were only a few programs and it was like the evening event of the family or perhaps the midday event, there might come on Leave it to Beaver, Saved by the Bell, Boy Meets World, whatever your show was, there would come in a newscaster that says, we interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you this breaking news announcement. And then they would let you know how the world seems to be different. They would let you know that what followed that were headlines of Pearl Harbor. We would follow headlines of, we've landed on the moon. Princess Diana has passed. JFK has been assassinated. 9-11 has happened. We interrupt all the schedule and the plans and the programs that you had for your life, and now there's news worthy of interruption. Now, many of us could hear these things and say, oh, that's interesting, moving on with my day. But Moses, who hears this interruption, says, I will turn to the side. I will go and investigate this interruption in my life. Now, today's, like, breaking news headlines in our culture are terrible. It's like, Khloe Kardashian is pregnant. You're like, who's Khloe Kardashian? Who cares? But in this moment with Moses, it is so unusual. It's like humanity landing on the moon. That can't happen. I'll have to turn to go and investigate what I see what I hear. Moses could have just said, man, that's a weird thing up there. It looks like it's burning, but nothing's being consumed. Anyways, Zipporah said to be home by five. Come on, sheep, come on, and move on with his plan. Tim Keller, the pastor in New York, has said, God has put burning bush interruptions in all of our life. There are things that interrupt our regularly scheduled planned events of like health news, financial news, Relationship, relationship news. There are, there are questions that have been in our minds that are pervasive, that, that continue to nag us. Is there something more than just this life? And many people will just be like, eh, I guess that's just what happens in life. 
eh, there's not really many great answers for that. I guess I'll just move on, on with the day. And here's the invitation. This is what we get to, the invitation to respond to the interruption, to come and investigate. And so Moses responds to the interruption. And what he sees is an invitation that God wants to use these punctuated moments that interrupt our lives to draw our attention to himself if we would turn to the side. And Moses turns to the side. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned to the side, after he had turned, the Lord gives this invitation. Out of the bush, God called, Moses, Moses. Now in Hebrew writing, there's, there's not punctuation. And so in order to make an exclamation or increase its magnitude, it's always through repetition. And so when we see Moses, Moses, this is God's exclamation, calling, welcoming, trying to draw near Moses to what he sees. This is the invitation. Moses, Moses, come near. And Moses hears their vo- his voice and draws near. But it sets up this wild paradox. This paradox of the God who calls and invites to come near also says, stop, do not come near, God said. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I love this picture that God has for us that he is a consuming fire. But he's, not bur- he's not consuming the materials that is always burned up or fading. But he is, he's a fire nonetheless. There's something about fire that intrigues us. I don't know if it's just me, but I love fire. And I don't think I'm a pyro. I just think fire is really, really awesome. And I, I, would, I would bet that you like fire as well. Like when we camp, we always have a fire. We have a fire pit in our backyard. We light a fire. And fire has no characters, no plot development, no like crash scenes. And yet we're all intrigued by it. And we just watch it. Just watch it burn. We love it so much that we actually make fake fireplaces with LED screens and hang them in our offices just so we can watch fire. We're so enthralled by it. There's something about fire that's so inviting especially on a cool evening. When we go camping, when we light the fire in the evening, all of the kids, parents, whoever we're camping with comes around the fire. And you want to get as close as you possibly can to the fire to receive its warmth for the sake of your life. There's awesome things that you can do with fire. Fire is an amazing thing that enables us to have life. And yet you get too close to fire, it'll kill you. This is a perfect picture of what God's doing in his invitation and yet saying, whoa, 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 whoa. There's something about me that you can't take flippantly. There's something about who I am that prohibits you from drawing as near as you want right now. And what, what he says to Moses is, it is because you're on holy ground. Now remember, Moses has been here for 40 years. Moses is actually, he's, he's the son-in-law of Jethro, who's a, a priest in Midian. If there was anything about this regional area that was holy, Moses would know about it. Perhaps he would have taken his sandals off earlier. Perhaps he wouldn't have been quick to investigate what's going on. Oh, that's the holy mountain. That always happens up there. No, this is an ordinary, familiar place in which Moses is responding to the interruption and this invitation. And here he sees God say, pause, the ground you're standing on is holy. And what we learn is it's not, a, it's not holy ground because it's a geographical place. It's holy ground because of God's presence. It's God's presence 
that makes that moment in time holy. It's a holy God that makes the ground holy. You know, the Jews didn't set up like a, a, a tribute there. There hasn't been like trips there. No, it, it's God's presence that made it holy. There's no reason to take a pilgrimage there. It's God's presence that makes something holy. Now we have to unpack this word holy because it's the holiness of God that interrupts Moses approaching him and being too near. The holiness in its most rudimental sense, rudimentary sense, is, is the idea of separateness, otherness. And so the holiness of God means that God is completely other, separated from us as human beings. And there's a variety of reasons for that. One specifically is his moral character, that God is unstained by sin. That he, he cannot be tainted by sin. He cannot be tempted. He, he has no lie within him. There's no injustice in God. He's perfect. Here's the problem. Is I'm a sinner. And I've got sin. And Moses was a sinner. And Moses had sin. And so how can sinners approach a holy God who is sinless, who's perfect? They can't. His justice would consume us. This holiness, this separateness, here's the $10 theological word, speaks to his transcendence. His transcendence is his complete otherness, that he's apart from us, that we can't know him, that he's so other than his creation. But the other side of his transcendence, here's the other $10 theological word, is his imminence. It does no good if God is simply transcendent, other, aloof, not present, but it's his imminence, his personal presence that makes himself known here that allows his people to draw near to some degree and so here is Moses meeting this God who says stop I'm holy but come near I want relationship with you and this will set up this paradox that will have to be resolved at some point in which a sinful man cannot draw near to a holy transcendent other God and this holy God is not something new. He tells Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is not a new God. This is a known God. It's not as though the God of Abraham and Isaac, well, he wasn't strong enough to get him out of Egypt. And so all of a sudden there's a new God on the scene. No, this is the known God who is faithful to his promises and covenant with his people, with Abraham. I am known, I am not new. And then in verse 7, he says, though I am transcendent and holy, let me tell you about my character. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. This is repeated from what we looked at last week at the end of chapter 2, is it not? That this is the God who hears your cries who sees your sufferings, who knows your pain. That's who this God is. That speaks to his imminence. Now, what we say about the Hebrew language is repetition is for importance. He's already said this at the end of chapter 2. He says it again here in the middle of 3. He's going to say it again at the end of 3. We should pick up on the importance of this is who God is. Though he is awesome and holy, he has tuned his ear to hear your prayers. Though he is awesome and transcendent and other, he has gazed his eyes to see your predicament. Though he is awesome and holy, he is aware 
and knows. And this word knows as a reminder is an intimate word. It's not just cognitively knows about you. It is as Adam knew Eve and they conceived. God knows, is intimately acquainted with your sufferings. That's what he's saying. I I hear and I see and I know. And then verse 8 is all the hope that everyone needs to have in order to break free from bondage. Verse 8, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. I have come down. The only answer for Israel's freedom, the only answer for us to be free from the bondage that we experience is for God to come down so that we might be drawn out. It's the only thing. Is the only answer is that God himself, who hears and sees and knows, would come down so that he would bring us out. It is by his strength. And I'm sure if you're Moses, you're like, finally, all right, God, you're going to act. You're coming down to bring your people out. And then he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Whoa, hold on, T, time out. Pump the brakes, cool the jets. You said you were coming down. Why do I have anything to do with this? I mean, Egypt was 40 years ago. What happened in Egypt stays in Egypt. I don't want to go back to Egypt. The guy's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to use you. You're, you're my chosen instrument of going back to Egypt. And he says this, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? I'm nobody. God's answer to that objection is so different than how we would answer that today. How we would answer that today with Moses is probably how we would answer it with our kids or our coworkers, or our friends. Is they'd say, who am I to accomplish this? And we'd say, you're strong enough. You're good enough. You're smart enough. Gosh darn it, people like you. But you know why I love God? Is he's just honest. He's just honest with us. And so Moses says, who am I to do this? And God knows, you're nobody. You're nobody. But I will be with you. That's the point, Moses. It's not that you have the strength to to pull yourself out of bondage or pull people out of bondage. And you don't have the strength today to pull yourself out of bondage. But God, who sees and hears and knows, has come down. And by his strength, can bring us out of bondage. The emphasis is on God doing the work through Moses. God loves to use willing participants to accomplish his work. And those who are reluctant, maybe reluctant participants to accomplish his work. Always calling people to himself to further his plans and purposes. And so Moses says, okay, if I go, if, I mean, if I go, we're not saying I'm going yet, but if I choose to go with this whole like plan of yours, if I go there and they ask me who sent me, and I tell them, okay, it's the, it's the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they ask me this question, they ask me this question, what is his name? What do I say? Now, why does Moses care about a name? See, Moses grew up in Egypt. And in Egypt is a polytheistic culture that has many gods, and all their gods are named. Its most famous god that Moses would have been aware of is the god of Ra, which is the god of the sun. 
And Egypt looked at the sun as the most significant source of life, the most powerful source of life, and said, that is the sun god, the giver of life. We will worship Ra. And they depicted Ra in different forms of a serpent and a cat. Most notably is this uh, sphere of, of uh, a solar sphere that represents Ra in many of their drawings. But Ra is named based on something that's created. And so all of these gods are named, giving it an insight of its nature and its character, who they are and what they're capable of, based off of something that's created. And God responds to Moses very differently. I'm not the God of the sun. I'm not the God of the west. I'm not the God of fertility. I'm not the God of water. I'm not the God of the spring. He simply says this, who shall I say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. What's he saying there? He says, I'm not a made up fake God in which people have named me based on created order. I am transcendent, holy, above everything, outside everything. And if you're asking for a name, here's the name. I am who I define myself to be. I am who I am. I am self-defining. The sun doesn't define me. The moon doesn't define me. The seasons don't define me. Why? Because I'm the creator of all these things. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. No one comes to me and says, this is the kind of God you should be. If there was a God, I think he should do this. No, no, no. I am who I am. Self-defining. Because I'm above all things. David sings of this. This is 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and all the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head, chief, above all, above everything. Who shall I send sent me? I am who I am. And so it speaks to the nature and the character of who God is. We've seen that he's holy, that he's totally separate. Now he's self-defining. No one defines, no one shapes who God gets to be. God determines who God is. And so he's self-defining. Back to the bush. There's another image that we get of of God not only being separate and self-defining, but as he's in the bush in his glory, that's a fire Our God is a consuming fire, as Deuteronomy 4 says, as Hebrews 12 says. The Lord is a consuming fire, though he's not consuming the bush. It speaks to the fact, as Sarna Nahum points out, that he's self-sufficient, self-sustaining, self-sustaining, self-perpetuating. That he doesn't need fuel to get him to go. No, he's independent of all of that. That is what makes him God. Unlike us as human beings who we run out of gas and so we, we put some more food in our bodies, more calories until we're tired again or hungry and we need more calories. We're not self-sustaining. The burning bush is an image of who God is as separate, as self-defined, self-sustaining, self-perpetuating. He never grows cold. He never fades. He never wears out, which speaks to this last attribute that I want you to see of who this God is speaking to Abraham. He says, go with the name I am and and, and tell them this, that this is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations as I am. Which speaks to his 
sense of being eternal. He's eternal and he's unchanging. This will be my name forever. The last $10 theological word is this. It's immutable. He's immutable. He, he will not change. The God that met with Moses and spoke with Abraham is the God that we gather and worship today. He's the same God who is totally other and separate. He is the God that is self-defining. He is the God that is self-sufficient. And he is the God that is immutable, unchanging. He is the same. Now what we said about Exodus was this, that we're studying Exodus so we can understand Jesus. Because God delights to make himself known. And the clearest way that God has made himself known is by promising a better rescuer to Moses. That Moses said, one will come like me, but he's gonna be a better me, a better rescuer. That he's gonna do a better exodus than just bringing us out of the bondage of Egypt. This rescuer, God's ultimate rescuer is gonna come. He's gonna hear and he's gonna see and he's gonna know and then he's gonna come down that we would be brought out of our slavery to sin. That we're all caught up in sin. We're all sinners. We all do the things that we don't wanna do and we don't do the things that we should be doing. We're stuck in sin, but God's promised rescue, a better Moses is coming to free people from their sin and the consequence of sin, which is death. God will one time, another time in the future, come down. And he comes down in his son, Jesus Christ, this clearest picture of who God is in, as a rescuer. And here is Jesus. And some people think, okay, I get Jesus. I mean, I don't know why we're in the Old Testament, but I get Jesus. I don't get this God. He just seems so far beyond me. And he is magnificent and holy, totally unrelatable. Oh, my goodness. Just give me Jesus. He seems so nice and kind. The problem is, if we don't understand what's happening here, we completely miss Jesus. And we'll shrink Jesus. We'll neuter Jesus for who he really is. See, Jesus tells us, this is John 10, that he and the Father are one. God the Father, that we see right here, and, and Jesus are one. If you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Well, look at me. I'm the, I'm the clearest expression of who God is, visible expression of who God is. I and the Father are one. Jesus gets in this argument with the religious leaders of his day. This is John chapter 8. And the religious leaders of the day are rather antagonistic towards Jesus. And they're calling him all sorts of names. They, called, they, they, they attack Jesus' birth story. And they call Jesus the B word that rhymes with pastored. Okay? You with me? Okay. It's not super nice. And so Jesus tells them, man, you are so far off, your rocker. You're not even, you're not even operating as children of Abraham. And he calls them children of the devil. Now, it's never good if Jesus calls you the child of the devil. And so Jesus called them the children of the devil, and they say, oh, okay, we are children of Abraham. And they're trying to ascribe themselves to Father Abraham for their identity, and yet they hate Jesus. And in John chapter 8, Jesus makes this provocative statement where he says this. This is John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. This will be my name, I am, for all future generations. And here Jesus says, I am. 
Now, we miss that. We think that's, that's a weird structure of that's vernacular, pronoun, whatever. They didn't miss it. Jesus is claiming to be God himself, the one who spoke with Moses. Not something new, but known. Something to be, be faithfully promised. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. They didn't miss it. Anyone claiming to be God, the judicial consequence was that they would be put to death by stoning. And John 8 ends this way, after Jesus says, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Joseph, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They know exactly what Jesus just claimed. Jesus just claimed to be God himself. See, Jesus isn't just another prophet to point the way. He's not a teacher to kind of show the way. Jesus is God. So Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you want to come to the Father, you come through me. Because the Father and I are one before Abraham was. I am. So back into Exodus, go back to the burning bush scene. It's fascinating that here Moses responds to a voice in the bush, and the bush is said to be the angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord. Angels of the Lord show up, but they're not worshipped. The angel of the Lord pops up throughout the Old Testament. And this is another theological $10 word. It's called a theophany. The theophany is the manifestation, a visible, sensible manifestation of God in the Old Testament. And here is a theophany, which many see as a Christophany, meaning the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And there are several of these, in which the Lord spoke to Moses. And what's so interesting is that it says that God spoke to Moses through the bush. The voice of the angel of the Lord is the mediator between God and Moses. And Jesus, who says, I am, is the mediator between God and man. It's not somebody new. It's somebody known. And so here's Jesus Christ, the better Moses. And he's interrupting our lives. So the cross is a worldwide interruption for those who are going along their way in their regularly scheduled program. And the cross interrupts it. And there's many ways in which God interrupts in our own life to get our attention of life just not going the way that we scheduled it, the way we planned it. And there's an invitation behind that interruption. Would you be willing to turn aside? There's an invitation behind all interruptions that happen in your life. Are you willing to turn aside and come meet with the one who is inviting you to draw near? The greatest thing about living on this side of Easter is that Jesus Christ solves the problem that we see in Moses. That he cannot come near to a holy God. But through the works of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, all who would believe in him would be saved. All those who would trust in him would be saved. Not because, as been not because we simply love him or follow him, but because we worship him. Christians are worshipers of Jesus because Jesus is God. And so when we look at Exodus and say, man, that God is massive and huge. The Father and I are one. Jesus is massive and huge. And yet Jesus is the approachable Savior 
that allows us to draw near to God and bring us into perfect, restored relationship with God the Father, that we would be holy because he is holy. That is the work of Jesus, that none of us can get out of this bondage of sin. None of us can free ourselves from sin. We can't on our own works, our own efforts, but God who heard and saw and knew came down in Christ. That those who would believe in him would come out to eternal life. And that turning aside is what we call repentance. Is that we would repent of the way that we've been living, a contrary to God. And that we would turn to God and say, we worship Christ, his only son, as God himself and our savior. The only question I have for you is what in the world is God doing in your life to cause some interruption? Perhaps that you would respond to his invitation to come and see more of who he is. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that as a God that is beyond us, awesome in power, is also personal, loving, and good. God, I thank you that you would not only come to your people in Egypt and show them who you are, but that you would give an ultimate expression of who you are in Christ. Lord, I pray for every single woman and man in this room that thinks that you have forgotten them. May they be reminded that the awesome God of Moses sees them and knows them today. That you're moving in their life even though they don't, can't see it or sense it. I pray that they would know your awesome work through your son Jesus Christ for their sake that whomsoever would believe would come to know Jesus Christ as God himself would be saved. And so Lord, I, I just pray that you would take all of us and take our whole life and our whole being and all of our problems that we would entrust them to you, that we would see you as big enough to deposit our doubts, that you're big enough to deposit our griefs, that you're big enough for us to give our sorrows to, that you're trustworthy enough to give our problems to. God, help us to see you in a grander way today. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.